everybody. Um, it's me again, and this is be the second time I'm recording. Um, it the reason it's been so long since I've done a podcast is because in my mind I wanted to uh <clears throat> read y'all the books that uh got me interested in reading and um just you know kind of explain why it interested me and I wanted to be able to share those with y'all um but well I, I can't find the book that I wanted to read and so I've just been putting it off and putting it off and putting it off and I'm like that that I'm not going to be able to put out any sort of content if I keep doing that so I'm just going to start with the book that my husband and I just fin finished um he's here <clears throat> too and he may or may not speak but anyway uh I'm I was really excited about this um if you haven't read the Hunger Games I think you really should and I will probably do um a Hunger Games the first chapter of the Hunger Games but Right now, just because we just finished this one and it's about to go back on the shelf. Um, I was going to do this. This is the prequel to um, The Hunger Games, uh, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes by Susan Collins. And even though it's a prequel, I still think you should read The Hunger Games series first. Um, we both have some kind of like love-hate relationship with The Hunger Games books. But I'm not going to get into that now. But uh, to give you a little bit of a background on this book, um, this takes place, I think, about 50 years before the Hunger Games book or Hunger Games series starts. Uh, about 60, actually. 60, okay. And, 60 some odd. And I love this book because it seems like the author really... Uh, took time and to in writing and the connections between this book and the um the trilogy were just kind of mind-blowing in some parts of it uh so anyway um we're gonna read the first chapter and alan is gonna help me with some pronunciations because well if you have read the hunger games uh you know some of the capital people oh my phone keeps going off some of the capital people um their names are just kind of crazy so let me turn my phone on silent and maybe we won't have those problems okay um anyway so the ballad of songbirds and snakes by susan collins Chapter one. Cornel see, I already messed up. We had to Google how to pronounce his name. So anyway, I'm gonna try this again. The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, Chapter One. Coriolanus released the fistful of cabbage into the pot of boiling water and swore that one day it would never pass his lips again. But this was not that day. He needed to eat a large bowl of the anemic stuff and drink every drop of broth to prevent his stomach from growling during the reaping ceremony. It was one of a long list of precautions he took to mask the fact that his family desperately residing in the pent oh, I'm sorry, despite residing in the penthouse of the capital's most opulent apartment building was as poor as district scum. That eight, that at 18, the heir to a once great house of snow had nothing to live on but his wits. His shirt for the reaping was worrying him. He had an acceptable pair of dark dress pants bought on the black market last year. But the shirt was what people looked at. Fortunately, the academy provided the uniforms it required for daily use. For today's ceremony, however, students were instructed to be dressed fashionably, 
But with the solemnity, the occasion uh, dictated. Tigris had said to trust her, and he did. Only his cousin's cleverness with a needle had saved him so far. Still, he couldn't expect miracles. The shirt they dug from the back of the wardrobe, his father's from better days, was stained and yellowed with age, half the buttons missing, and a cigarette burn on one cuff. Too damaged to sell in even the worst of times. And this was to be his reaping shirt? This morning, he had gone to her room at daybreak, only to find both his cousin and his shirt missing. Not a good sign. Had Tigress given up on the old thing and braved the black market in some last-ditch effort to find him proper clothing? And what on earth would she possess worth trading for it? Only one thing. Herself. And the house of snow had not yet fallen that far. Or was it falling down as he salted the cabbage? He thought of people putting a price on her. With her long pointed nose and skinny body, Tigress was no great beauty. But she had a sweetness and a vulnerability that invited abuse. She would find takers if she had a mind to. The idea made him feel sick and helpless and consequently disgusted with himself. From deep in the apartment, he heard the recording of the capital anthem, Jim of Penem, kick on, and his grandmother's tumultuous soprano voice joined in, bouncing off the walls. Jim of Penem, mighty city, through the ages you shine anew. As always, she was painfully off-key and slightly behind tempo. The first year of the war, she'd played the recording on national holidays for five-year-old Coriolanus and eight-year-old Tigress in order to build their sense of patriotism. The daily recital hadn't begun until the, that black day when the district rebels had surrounded the capital, cutting it off from supplies for the remaining two years of the war. Remember, children, she'd say, we are but besieged. We have not surrendered. Then she would warble the anthem out of the penthouse window as the bombs rained down her small act of defiance. We humbly kneel to your ideal and the notes she could never quite hit and pledge our love to you. Cornelia um, said his name wrong again. Coriolanus winced a little. For a decade now, though the rebels had been silent, his grandmother had not. There were still two verses to go. Jim of Penem, heart of justice, wisdom crowns your marble brow. He wondered if more furniture might absorb some of the sound, but the question was academic. At present, their penthouse apartment was a microchasm of the capital itself, bearing the scars of relentless rebel attacks. The 20-foot-high walls were veined with cracks. The molded ceiling was dotted with holes for missing chunks of plaster, and ugly black strips of electrical tape held the place <laughs> held in place the broken glass of the arch windows that looked out over the city throughout the war and the decade that followed the family had been forced to sell or trade many of its possessions so that some rooms were entirely empty and closed off and others sparsely finished at best even worse during the bitter cold of the siege's final winter, several elegant carved wooden pieces and innumerable volumes of books had been sacrificed to the fireplace to keep the family from freezing to death. Watching the bright pages of his picture books, the very ones he'd pored over with his mother, reduced to ashes, had never failed to bring him to tears. But better off sad than dead... 
Having been in his friend's apartments, Coriolanus knew that most families had begun to repair their homes. But the Snows could not even afford a few yards of linen for a new shirt. He thought of his classmates rifling through their closets or slipping into their newly tailored suits and wondered just how long he could keep up appearances. You give us light. You reunite. To you we make our vow. If Tigris revamped if Tigress's revamped shirt was unwearable, what was he to do? Fake the flu and call in sick? Spineless. Soldier through in his uniform shirt? Disrespectful. Squeeze into the red button down that he had outgrown two years ago? Poor. Acceptable option? None of the above. Perhaps Tigress had gone to ask help from her employer, Fabricia Whatnot, a woman as ridiculous as her name, but with a certain talent for a certain talent for derivative fashion. Whether the trend was feathers or leathers, plastics or plush, she could find a way to incorporate it at a reasonable rate. Not much of a student, Tigress had foregone university when she'd graduated from the academy to pursue her dream of becoming a designer. She was supposed to be an apprentice, uh, an apprentice, but mm, although Fabricia used her more as slave labor, requiring her to give foot, foot massages and clean clumps of her long magenta hair from the drains, but Tigress never complained and would hear no criticism of her boss. So pleased and grateful was she to have a position in fashion. Gem of Panem, seat of power, strength in peacetime, shield in strife. Coriolanus opened the refrigerator, hoping for something to liven up the cabbage soup. The sole occupant was a metal saucepan, when he removed the lid, a mush of congealed shredded potatoes stared back at him. Had his grandmother finally made good on her threat of learning to cook? Was the stuff even edible? He replaced the lid until he had more information to work with. What a luxury, what a luxury it would be to toss it in the trash without a second thought. What a luxury trash would be. He remembered, or thought he did, being very small and watching garbage trucks operated by avoxes, tongueless workers, made the best workers, or so his grandmother said. Humming down the streets, emptying large bags of discarded food. Containers? Worn household items? Then came a time when nothing was disposable. No calorie unwanted and no item unable to be traded or burned for heat, or tucked against a wall for insulation. Everyone had learned to despise waste. It was creeping back into fashion, though, a sign of prosperity, like a decent shirt. Protect our land with armored hand. The shirt, the shirt. His mind could fixate on a problem like that, anything really, and not let go as if controlling one element of his world would keep him from ruin. It was a bad habit that blinded him to other things that could harm him. A tendency toward obsession had hardwired into his brain and would likely be his undoing if he couldn't learn to outsmart it. His grandmother's voice squeaked out the final crescendo. Our capital... Our life. Crazy old woman still clinging to still clinging to pre-war days. He loved her, but she'd lost touch with reality years ago. Every meal she'd rattle on about Snow's legendary grandeur, even when their fare even when their fare consisted of watery bean soup and stale crackers. And to hear her tell it, 
it was a given that his future would be glorious. When Coriolanus is president, she often began, when Coriolanus is president, everything from the rickety capital Air Force to the exorbitant price of pork chops would be magically corrected. Thank goodness the broken elevator and her arthritic knees prevented her from going out much, and her infrequent visitors were as fossilized as she. The cabbage began to boil, filling the kitchen with the smell of poverty. Coriolanus, drabbed, Coriolanus jabbed at it with a wooden spoon. Still no tigress. Soon it would be too late to call and make an excuse. Everyone would have assembled in the Academy's Heaven's Bee Hall. There would be anger to deal with, as well as disappointment, from his communications professor, Satariah Click, who had campaigned for him to receive one of the 24 coveted mentorships in the Hunger Games. Besides being Satariah's favorite, he was her teaching aide, and doubtless she would need him for something today. She could be unpredictable, especially when she'd been drinking, and that was a given on the day of the reaping. He'd better call and warn her, say he couldn't stop vomiting or something, but would do his best to recover. He stilled himself and picked up the phone to plead dire illness when another thought hit him. If he failed to show, would she allow them to replace him as a mentor? And if she did, would that weaken his chance for one of the Academy Prizes presented at graduation? Without such a prize, he had no way to afford to go to university. Hey, babe. How are you liking this chapter? Yeah? Okay. With a little snore there. <laughs> Without such a prize, he had no way to afford to go to university, which meant no career, which meant no future. Not for him, and who knew what would happen to the family. And the front door, warped and complaining, scraped open. Corio! Tigress cried out. And he slammed the phone down. The nickname she'd given him when he was a newborn had stuck. He flew out of the kitchen, almost knocking her over. But she was too excited to reproach him. I did it! I did it! Well, I did something. Her feet did a rapid little run in place as she held up a hanger draped in an old dress bag. Look, look, look! Coriolanus unzipped the bag and stripped it from the shirt. It was gorgeous. Gorgeous. No, even better. It was classy. The thick linen was neither the original white nor the yellow of age, but a delicious cream. The cuffs and collar had been replaced with black velvet, and the buttons were gold and ebony cubes. Tesserae? Each had two tiny holes drilled through it for the thread. You're brilliant, he said earnestly. And the best cousin ever. Carefully to hold the shirt out of harm's way, he hugged her with his free arm. Snow lands on top. Snow lands on top. Tigress crowed. It was the saying that had gotten them through the war. When it was a constant struggle not to be ground into the earth. Tell me everything, he said, knowing she would want to. She so loved to, to talk clothes. Tigress threw up her hands and gave a breathy laugh. Where do I begin? She began with the bleach. Tigress had suggested the white curtains in Fabricia's bedroom looked dingy and while soaking them in bleach water, she slipped in the shirt. It had responded beautifully, but no amount of soaking could entirely erase the stains. So she'd boiled the shirt with dead marigolds she'd found in the bin outside Fabricia's neighbors. And the blossoms had dyed the linen just enough to conceal the stains. The velvet for the cuffs was from a large drawstring pouch that had held some now meaningless plaque 
of their grandfathers. The tesserae she had paired from the in I'm sorry, the tesserae she had pried from the interior of a cabinet in the maid's bathroom. She'd gotten the building maintenance man to drill the holes in exchange for mending his coveralls. Was that this morning? he asked. Oh no, yesterday, Sunday. This morning I ain't did you find my potatoes? He followed her into the kitchen where she opened the refrigerator and pulled out the pan. I was up until all hours making starch for, from them. Then I ran down to the Doolittle so I could have a proper iron. Saved them for the soup. Tigers up into the mess into the boiling cabbage and stirred it around. He noticed the lilac circles under her golden brown eyes and couldn't help feeling a pang of guilt. When was the last time you slept? He asked. Oh, I'm fine. I ate the potato skins. They say that's where the vitamins are anyway. And today's the reaping, so it's practically a holiday, she said cheerfully. Not at Fabricia's, he said. Not anywhere, really. Reaping day was terrible in the districts, but not much of a celebration in the capital either. Like him, most people took no pleasure in remembering the war. Tigress would spend the day waiting hand and foot on her employer and her motley crew of guests while they exchanged morose tales of the deprivation they'd experienced during the siege and drank themselves senseless. Tomorrow, nursing them through hangovers would be worse. Stop worrying. Here, you better hurry up and eat. Tigress ladled some soup into a bowl and set it on the table. Coriolanus glanced at the clock, gulped down the soup without caring that it burned his mouth and ran to his room with his shirt. He had already showered and shaved and his fair skin was thankfully blemish free today. The school issued underwear and black socks were fun. He pulled on the dress pants, which were more than acceptable and crammed his feet into a pair of lace leather boots. They were too small, but he could bear it. Then he pulled the shirt on gingerly, tucked in the tails, and turned to the mirror. He was not as tall as he should have been. As for so many of his generation, a poor diet had likely compromised his growth. But, but he was athletically trim, with excellent posture, and his shirt and the shirt emphasized the finer points of his physique. Not since he was little, when his grandmother would parade him through the streets in a purple velvet suit, had he looked so regal. He smoothed back his blonde curls as he mockingly whispered to his image, Coriolanus Snow, future president of Panem, I salute you. For Tigress's sake, he made a grand entrance into the living room, extending his arms and turning in a full circle to show off the shirt. She squealed in delight and, and applauded. You look amazing, so handsome and fashionable. Come see. Grandma'am. It was another nickname coined by Little Tigress, who found Grandma and certainly Nana insufficient for someone so imperial. Her grandmother appeared, a fresh-cut red rose cupped lovingly in her tremorous um, hands. She wore a long black flowing tunic, the kind so popular before the war and so outdated as to be laughable now, and a pair of embroidered slippers with curled toes that had once been part of a costume. Strands of her thin white hair poked from the bottom of a rusty velvet turban. This was the tail end of a once lavish wardrobe. Her few decent items were saved for company or the rare foray into the city. Here, here, boy, put this on. Fresh from my roof garden, she ordered. He reached for the rose, but a thorn pierced his palm. In this shaky exchange, blood welled from the wound, and he held his hand out to keep it from staining his precious shirt. 
His grandmother seemed perplexed. I only wanted you to look elegant, she told him. Of course you did, grandma'am, said Tigress, and so he shall. As she led Coriolanus into the kitchen, he reminded himself that self-control was an essential skill, and he should be grateful. His grandmother provided daily opportunities to practice it. Puncture wounds never bleed long, Tigress promised him, as she quickly cleaned and bandaged his hand. She snipped away at the rose, preserving a bit of greenery, and pinned it to his shirt. It does look elegant. You know what her roses mean to her. Thank her. So he did. He thanked them both and sped out the door, down the twelve ornate flights of stairs, through the lobby, and out into the Capitol. His front door opened into the Corso, an avenue so wide that eight chariots had comfortably ridden side by side on it in the old days when the capital had put on di when the capital had put on displays of military pomp for the crowds. Coriolanus could remember hanging out the apartment windows as a young child, party guest. <clears throat> Uh, bragging that they had front row seats to the parades. Then the bombers arrived, and for a long time, his block was impassable. Now, through the streets, or fine, now that the streets were finally clear, rebels still lay in piles on the sidewalks, and whole buildings were as gutted as the day they'd been struck. Ten years after the victory, and he was dodging between chunks of marble and granite as he wove his way to the academy. Sometimes Coriolanus wondered if the debris had been left there to remind the citizens of what they had endured. People had short memories. They needed to navigate the rubble, peel off the grubby ration coupons, and witness the Hunger Games to keep the war fresh in their minds. Forgetting could lead to complacency. And then they'd all be back at square one. All right. We still have about half the chapter left to read. But unfortunately, my reading partner over here has fallen asleep. And his snoring is getting louder and louder. So... <laughs> That's all right. So we're going to take a pause on this until tomorrow. So um, it'll all be together when you hear it or when you listen to it, I guess. Um, we'll pick up again later. It's not stopping recording. All right, it is not the next morning, but it is a new day. Um, Alan is at work, and uh, me and Missy, my pup that you can probably see in our picture, um, are still in bed because it's my day off. And so I'm going to pick up where we left off um, with uh, the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. As she... As he turned on to Scholar's Road, he tried to measure his pace. He wanted to arrive on time, but cool and composed, not a sweaty mess. This reaping day, like most, was shaping up to be a scorcher. But it, what else could you expect on July 4th? He felt grateful for the perfume of his grandmother's rose as, he was, uh, as his warming shirt was giving off a faint scent of potatoes and dead marigolds. As the finest secondary school in the capital, the academy educated the offspring of the prominent, wealthy, and influential. With over 400 students in each class, it had been, poss it had been possible for Tigris and Coriolanus, given their family's long history at the school, to gain acceptance without much difficulty. Unlike the university, it was tuition-free and provided lunch and school supplies along with uniforms. Anyone who was anyone attended the academy, and Coriolanus, who needed those connections as a foundation for his future. 
The grand staircase up the academy could hold the entire student body, so it easily accommodated the stream of officials, professors, and students headed for the Reaping Day festivities. Coriolanus climbed it slowly, attempting a casual, casual dignity in case he caught someone's eye. People knew him, or at least they had known his parents and grandparents. And there was a certain standard expected of a snow. This year, uh, beginning this very day, he was hoping to achieve per personal recognition as well. Mentoring in the Hunger Games was his final project before graduating from the Academy in midsummer. If he gave an impressive performance as a mentor with his outstanding academic record, Coriolanus should be awarded a monetary prize substantial enough to cover his tuition at the university. There would be 24 tributes, one boy and one girl, from each of the 12 defeated districts, drawn by a lottery to be thrown into an arena to fight to the death in the Hunger Games. It was all laid out in the Treaty of Treason and had that had ended the dark days of the district's rebellion, one of the many punishments borne by the rebels. As in the past, the tributes would be dumped into the Capitol Arena and nailed a, I'm sorry, a now dilapidated amphitheater that had been used for sports and entertainment events before the war, along with some weapons to murder one another. Viewing was encouraged in the Capitol, but a lot of people avoided it. How to make it more engaging was the challenge. With this in mind, for the first time, the tributes were to be assigned mentors. 24 of the Academy's best and brightest seniors had been tapped for the job. The specifics of what this entailed were still being worked out. There was talk, there was talk of preparing each tribute for personal interviews, maybe some grooming for the cameras. Everyone agreed that if the Hunger Games were to continue, they needed to evolve into a more meaningful experience. And the pairing of the Capitol Youth with the district tributes had people intrigued. Coriolanus made his way through an entry draped in black banners, down a vaulted passage, and into a cavernous, into cavernous Heaven to Be Hall, where they would watch the broadcast of the reaping ceremony. He was by no means late, but the hall was already humming with faculty and students and a number of games officials who were not required for the opening day's broadcast. Avoxes wove through the crowd with trays of pasca and um, a concoction of watery wine laced with honey and herbs. It was an intoxicating version of the sour stuff that sustained the capital through the war, supposedly fending off illness. Coriolanus took a goblet and swished a little of the Pasca around his mouth, hopefully rinsing away any trace of cabbage breath. But he only allowed himself one swallow. It was stronger than most people thought, and in previous years he had seen upperclassmen make complete fools of themselves by imbibing too deeply. The world still thought Coriolanus rich, but his only real currency was charm, which he spread liberally as he made his way through the crowd. Faces lit up as he gave friendly hellos to students and teachers alike, asking about family members, dropping compliments here and there. Your lecture on district retaliation haunts me. Love the bangs. How did your mother's back surgery go? Well, tell her she's my hero. He traveled past the hundreds of cushion chairs set up for the occasion, and on the dais where Satariah was regaling a mix of academy professors and games officials with some wild story, although he only caught the last line. Well, I said, I'm sorry about your wig, but you were the one who insisted on bringing a monkey. He dutifully joined in the laughter that followed. Oh, Coriolanus, Satteria 
I don't, I haven't decided on her name. If it's Satiria or Satiria, I might mix it up. So here we go. Oh, Coriolanus, Satiria drawled as she waved him over. Here's my star pupil. pupil. He gave her the expected kiss on the cheek and registered that she was several glasses of Posca ahead of him. Really, she needed to get her drinking under control, although the same thing could be said of half the adults he knew. Self-medication was a citywide epidemic. Still, she was amusing and not overly uptight, one of the few professors who allowed students to call them by their first name. She drew back a bit and surveyed him. Beautiful shirt. Where did you get such a thing? He looked at the shirt as if surprised by the existence and gave a shrug of a young man of limitless options. The snows have deep closets, he said airily. I was trying for respectful yet celebratory. And so it is. What are those cunning buttons? Satariah asked, fingering one of the cubes on his cuffs. Tesserae? Are they? Well, that explains why they remind me of the maid's bathroom, Coriolanus responded, drawing a chuckle from her friends. This was the impression he fought to sustain. A reminder that he was the rare person who had a maid's bathroom, let alone one tiled tesserae, tempered with a self-deprecating uh, joke about his shirt. He nodded at Satariam. Lovely gown. Um, it's new, isn't it? He could tell at a glance that it was the same dress she always wore to the reaping ceremony, refurbished with tufts of black feathers. But she, uh, but she had validated his shirt, and he needed to return the favor. I had it done especially for today, she said, embracing the question, 10th anniversary, and all that. Elegant, he said. All in all, they were not a bad team. His pleasure drained as he spotted the gym, uh, the gymnasium mistress, Professor Agrippina Sickle, using her muscular shoulders to maneuver her way through the crowd. Behind her was her aide, Sejanus Plinth, who was carrying the ornamental shield Professor Sickle insisted on holding for the group photo each year. It had been awarded to her at the end of the war for successfully overseeing academy safety drills during the bombings. It was not the shield that caught Coriolanus's attention, but Sejanus's outfit, outfit, a soft coral gray suit with a blinding white shirt offset by a paisley tie, cut to add flow to his tail, I'm sorry, to his tall angular frame. Uh, the ensemble was stylish, brand new, and smelling of money. War profiteering, to be exact, Sejanus's father was a District 2 manufacturer who had sided with the president. He had made such a fortune off, um, off munitions that he'd been able to buy his family's way into a capital life. The Plinths now enjoyed privileges that the oldest, most powerful families had earned over generations. It was unprecedented that Sejanus, a district-born boy, was a student at the academy, but his father's lavish donation had allowed for much of the school's post-war reconstruction. A capital-born citizen would have expected a building to be named for them. Sejanus's father had only requested an education for his son. For Coriolanus, the plants and their kind were a threat to all he held dear. The newly rich climbers in the capital were chipping away at the old order simply by virtue of their presence. It was particularly vexing because the bulk of the snows, uh, because the bulk of the snow family fortune was also invested in munitions. But district, but in District Thirteen. Their sprawling complex, blocks and blocks of factories and research facilities had been bombed to dust. District 13 had been nuked and the entire area still emitted unlivable levels of radiation. The center of the capital's military functioning ha had shifted to District 2 and fallen right into the plinth's lap. When the news of District 13's demise had reached the capital, 
Coriolanus' grandmother had publicly brushed it off, saying it was fortunate they had plenty of other assets. But they didn't. Sejanus had arrived on the school playground ten years ago. A shy, sensitive boy, cautiously surveying the other children with a pair of soulful brown eyes, much too large for his strained face. When word had gotten out that he'd come from the districts, Coriolanus's first impulse had been to join his classmates' campaign to make the new kid's life a living hell. On further reflection, he'd ignored, uh, he'd ignored him. If the other capital children took this to mean that baiting the district brat was beneath him, Sejanus took it as decency. Neither take was quite accurate, but both reinforced the image of Coriolanus as a class act. A woman of formidable statue, Professor Sickle, uh, cruised into Satirius' circle, scattering her inferiors to the four winds. Good morning, Professor Click. Oh, Agrippina, good. You remembered your shield, said Satariah, accepting a firm handshake. It worries me that young people will forget the real meaning of the day. And Sejanus, how smart you look. Sejanus attempted to bow, sending a wayward look, lock of hair into his eyes. The cumbersome shield caught him in the chest. Too smart, said Professor Sickle. I told him if I wanted a peacock, I'd call the pet store. They should all be in their uniforms, she eyed Coriolanus. That's not terrible. Your father's old mess shirt. Your father's old mess dress shirt. Was it? Coriolanus had no idea. A vague memory of his father in a dashing evening suit dripping in metals came to him. He decided to play out the hand. Thank you for noticing, Professor. I had it redone so as not to suggest I'd seen combat myself, but I wanted him here with me today. Very fitting, said Professor Sickle. Then she directed her attention to Satariah and her views and her views on the latest deployment of peacekeepers, the nation's soldiers, to District 12, where the coal miners were failing to produce their quotas. With their teachers engaged, Coriolanus nodded at the shield. Getting a workout this morning? Sejanus gave a wry smile. Always an honor to be of service. That's a fine polished job, Coriolanus replied. Sejanus tensed at the implica implication that he was, what, a suck-up? A lackey? Coriolanus let it build a moment before he diffused it. I should know. I do all of Satariah's wine goblets. Sejanus relaxed at that. Really? No, not really, but only because she hasn't thought of it, said Coriolanus, seesawing between disdain and camaraderie. Professor Sickle thinks of everything. She doesn't hesitate to call me, day or night. Sejanus looked as if he might continue, then just sighed. And of course, now that I'm graduating, we're moving closer to the school. Perfect timing, as usual. Coriolanus suddenly felt weary. Whereabouts? Somewhere on, somewhere on the course, though. A lot of those grand places will be going on the market soon. Owners not being able to afford the taxes or some such, my father says. Shield scraped the floor and Sejanus hefted it up. They don't pay tax properties in the capital. Only in the districts, said Coriolanus. It's a new law, Sejanus told him, to get more money from for rebuilding the city. Coriolanus tried to tamp down the panic rising inside of him. A new law? And standing a tax on his apartment? For how much? As it was, they barely eked out a living on Tigris's, on Tigris's penance. The tiny military pension his grandmother received for her husband's service to Panem and his own dependent benefits as the child of a slain war hero, which would cease on graduation. If they couldn't pay the taxes, would they lose the apartment? It was all they had. Selling the place would be of no help. 
He knew his grandmother had borrowed every cent on it she could. So if they sold, there would be next to nothing left. They would have have to move to some obscure neighborhood and join the grimy ranks of everyday citizens without status, without influence, without dignity. The disgrace would kill his grandmother. It would be kinder to toss her out of the window of the penthouse. At least that would be quick. Y'all right? Sejanus peered at him, puzzled. You just went white as a sheet. Coriolanus regained his composure. I think it's that I think it's the Pasca. Turns my stomach. Yeah, Sejanus agreed. Ma was always forcing it down me during the war. Ma? Was Coriolanus's place about to be about to be up uh upsurred by someone who referred to his mother as Ma? The cabbage and Pasca threatened to make a reappearance. He took a deep breath and forced his stomach to hang on to it, resenting Sejanus more than he had since the well-fed district boy with the cloddish accent first wandered up to him, clutching a bag of gumdrops. Coriolanus heard a bell ring and saw his fellow students converging at the front of the dais. I guess it's time to assign us tributes, Sejanus said glumly. Coriolanus followed him to where a special section of chairs, six rows by four, had been set up for the mentors. He tried to push the apartment crisis out of his head to focus on the critical task at hand. More than ever, it was essential that he excel. And to excel... He must be assigned a competitive tribute. Dean Koska Highbottom, the man credited with the creation of the Hunger Games, was overseeing the mentor program personally. He presented himself to the students with all the array of a sleepwalker, dreamy-eyed, as usual, doped up on morphling. His once fine physique was shrunken and draped with sagging skin, the close-clipped precision of a recent haircut and crisp suit only threw his deterioration into relief. Due to his fame as the game's inventor, he still had a tenuous hold on his position, but there were rumors that the Academy Board was losing patience. Ho oh, there, he slurred, waving a crumpled piece of paper over his head. Reading the things off now, the students hushed. Trying hard to hear him above the din of the hall, read you a name, then you who gets that one right. So fine, District 1 boy goes to... Dean Highbottom squinted at the paper, trying hard to focus. Glasses, he mumbled, forgot them. Everyone everyone stared at his glasses already perched on his nose and waited while his fingers found them. Ah, here we go. Livia Cardu. Livia's pointed little face broke into a grin and she punched the air in victory, shouting, Yes! in her shrill voice. She had always been prone to gloating, as if the plum assignment was solely a reflection of her and not on her mother running the largest bank in the capital. Coriolanus, <coughs> Coriolanus felt increasing desperation as Dean Highbottom stumbled through the list, assigning each district's boy and girl a mentor. After 10 years, a pattern had emerged. The better-fed, more capital-friendly districts of 1 and 2 produced more victors. <coughs> with the fishing and farming tributes from 4 and 11 also being contenders. Coriolanus had hoped for either... <coughs> oh, goodness. I need to get a sip of water. Hold on. We're almost finished with this chapter. Let me try again. Coriolanus had hoped for either a one or a two, but neither was assigned to him which was made more insulting when Sejanus scored the District 2 boy. District 4 passed without mention of his name. 
and his last real chance for a victor, the District 11 boy, was assigned to Clemencia Dovecote, daughter of the Energy Secretary. Like Livia, Clemencia received news of her good fortune with tact. I'm sorry, unlike Livia, Clemencia received news of her good fortune with tact, pushing her sheet of raven hair over her shoulders as she studiously made note of her tribute in her binder. Something was amiss when a snow, who also happened to be one of the Academy's high honor students, had gone unrecognized. Coriolanus was beginning to think they had forgotten him. Perhaps they were giving him some special position? When, to his horror, he heard Dean Highbottom mumble. And last but not least, uh, District 12 girl... Um, she belongs to Coriolanus Snow. So, that was the first chapter of The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. And I really hope that you enjoyed it and will continue reading it. Like I said, this was a fabulous book. Um, my husband ranked it a four out of five stars on his Goodreads. And, um... I think what I'll talk about when I do a Hunger Games one later, but um, I feel like because of uh, like she had to meet writing deadlines and stuff that um, Susan Collins was rushed in, in the last two Hunger Games books, especially the last one. But this one, I feel like she was able to take her time on and um, it is a, it's the largest of any of the books that she's written having to do with that series. Um, but it is so well written. I just, I, I really did enjoy it. It, um, it connects some things with that. There's like so many connections and I plan on looking into how many, cause I'm sure by now somebody's made something, a list of them on the internet. But anyway, um, I guess I will talk to you guys later. And uh, hopefully get this published soon. Bye.